Hello, everyone. This is um, Claudia Morgan, the host of the Spiritual Inspire show. And um, today, my guest is the uh, amazing uh, Dennis McKenna. I don't know if we need any more introductions, but I will do it uh, anyways. Um, Dennis McKenna has conducted research in ethnopharmacology for over 40 years. He's a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator on the Huasca project the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. From 2000 to 2017, he taught courses on ethnopharmacology and plants in human affairs as an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. Dennis is the founder of the McKenna Academy, an incubator that nourishes the emergence of this still embryonic global consciousness. He is the younger brother of Terrence McKenna, Dennis authored or co-authored several books, among which are The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, The Invisible Landscape, Mind, Hallucinogens, and the I Ching, and published in 1975 under pseudonyms, it's Silo Magic Mushrooms Grower's Guide. Dennis, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I will start with... Um, something which is, you know, very close to, to your heart about uh, ethnopharmacology. So let tell us uh, to understand what does the, the jungle ethnopharmacology teaches us? What's so special about that? Well, ethnopharmacology is kind of the, uh, the scientific tool that the scientific lens, if you will, that can be brought to the investigation what you might call traditional pharmacopias, traditional medicine, although it's not limited to medicine. Ethnopharmacology actually has a rather tortured definition, but there is there are reasons for for it, uh, and there are as many definitions of ethnopharmacology probably as there are ethnopharmacologists. I happen to like mine. Mine says that ethnopharmacology is the interdisciplinary, by definition, inherently interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary scientific investigation of biologically active substances used or observed by humans in traditional societies. So it's a kind of a long definition, but it's important in the sense that uh, it's not always about medicinal plants. It's not always about plants, right? Because biologically active substances can come from plants, fungi, animals, bacteria, whatever. And all of these different classes of organisms have uses in traditional societies. Sometimes they don't even know that that's what they're using, but they have them. It's interdisciplinary by definition being the kind of combination of, of pharmacology and ethno, the ethno side of it being meaning people. What do people do, you know, within the area of pharmacology? And But it's also important to define that it has to do with traditional societies. In other words, it's the study of traditional societies. And for example, uh, something like arrow poisons or fish poisons or things like that are clearly within the scope of ethnopharmacology. So it's not confined to medicines. I mean, it often is, but it, not necessarily, because 
uh, indigenous people are actually quite creative. They can recognize, uh, you know, a, a plant for its toxicity and, uh, and very likely find uses for it. I think the classic example is curare. Curare is not one thing. Curare is an arrow poison, as you know, but it, it's not one thing. There are many curares. They're very complex recipes. And, you know, this is a reflection of the sort of ingenuity of, uh, of indigenous people. So if we didn't restrict it to that, traditional societies or indigenous societies or folk knowledge, I guess you could say, then everything we do is ethnopharmacology, you know, even pharmacology is ethnopharmacology, you know, because it's a people <laughs> and working in institutional frameworks and so on, but it's still uh, interaction of people with biologically active substances. But that's, that's too big a, an area. To, so we cut it down by saying we're, we're looking at traditional uses here. But the point is that it takes, uh, uh, you know, it combines these two areas. So, you know, indigenous practices and and then pharmacology and all that that implies which in, which you know overlaps with chemistry and clinical studies and and you know that sort of thing but that that's the basic definition of it not so basic i once yeah. heard you talk about a plant called uh, datura uh, is that different than ayahuasca does it require ceremony or can be taken a different uh, way uh, Detroit is a member of the nightshade family, the Solanaceae, and uh, uh, some nightshades like Detura, like Belladonna, uh, and other, many of them are toxic, toxic species. They contain a class of alkaloids called tropanes, tropane alkaloids, and uh, Detura species are they're often used in in uh, sorcery and witchcraft in traditional societies in part because they can induce a state of delirium and confusion uh, they're they're psychoactive they are not psychedelic in the not in the pharmacological sense but they are profoundly psychoactive and I sometimes uh, uh, characterize them as they are they are uh, true hallucinogens, but not psychedelics. And psychedelics are, uh, you know, you can have hallucinations on psychedelics, but not invariably. The term hallucinogen is a misnomer. It's actually more uh, better applied to something like Datura because you have hallucinations and you can't tell whether they're real or not. When you have a hallucination on a psychedelic, you usually know that what you're seeing is not real. In the case of Datura and these nightshades, you can't say that. You know, you, you, I, if you were sitting across the table from me and we were having this conversation, you could look as solid as you do and, and it could be a complete hallucination. You know, and I wouldn't know it until you just sort of faded away into the into the ether and then oh okay you know that wasn't a real person i was talking to that was my my delusion 
Datura is, you know, and because it creates confusion and uh, really disrupts your, uh, you know, uh, ability to uh, distinguish reality from not, uh, not reality, it also makes you extremely suggestible and uh and it can be abused in that way and that's why sorcerers like it and because basically if you can contrive to dose somebody with detura or any of these nightshades then they become very compliant you know because they don't really know what they're doing and there are all sorts of horror stories about detura being used this way uh, in south america the uh, the corresponding genus is Brugmansia. These uh, uh, angel trumpet they used to be classified Datura, but then the name was changed officially to Brugmansia. Uh, but they they have the same alkaloids and they are used very much in South America the way that Daturas might be used in uh, the Southwest of the U.S. Uh, in Navajo witchcraft, for example, is all about Datura. In the European traditions, these nightshades, uh, Datura, uh, Henbane, Belladonna, Mandragora, all of these things are in the same family with similar alkaloid profiles. In South America, it's the Brugmansias, these, and they are incredibly beautiful trees. They have, you know, these funnel-shaped uh, flowers that, you know, are, are pollinated by different groups of animals. Bats, actually, bats uh, like to pollinate some of the detours and they put out a very, you know, um, alluring fragrance. Uh, and they are used uh, in, in ethnomedicine, in, in shamanic traditions in, in South America, either by themselves or sometimes they're added to ayahuasca. Uh, the, the local name for the, the common name for Brugmansia species are uh, uh, toe is what it's called in South America. And the common name is like angel trumpet is, is the common name. They're grown everywhere in the tropics because they're ornamentals, but they're called, it's called toe. Sometimes they put leaves of toe in to ayahuasca and uh, when that happens it it's probably it it's a good sign that the person you're dealing with is is a shady character in a certain way that a brujo as we call it because if you know how to make good ayahuasca you don't need to put detour into it you know and, and it shouldn't be in it in my opinion because it because of what it does to you and because so if, if the if the guy is or if the person is putting uh detura uh toe into ayahuasca i think that's a good signal that you should get the hell out of there <laughs> yeah it's important to, to select the, the environment you are going to have your experiencing so when your journey yeah that's very important uh, I know, Dennis, that uh, through the Hafter Institute, uh, you are involved in the psilocybin um, research. Do you expect uh, this substance to be available as a treatment anytime soon? Psilocybin? Psilocybin, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it, it's, 
you probably follow the science. It's it's already happening. Yeah, and I think uh, you know it's it's really interesting to see uh, see this occurring because uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is just the nature of capitalism to look around for opportunities to make money. And now all of a sudden, you know, psilocybin and psychedelics in general are, are sexy. You know, everybody wants to get involved in many startup companies and, uh, and everybody's trying to, uh, they have a different angle on it, everything from making micro doses to, to you know, establishing clinical trials and and doing it, the science is there, uh, you know, and, and I I think it's very promising. I think I think the integration of psychedelics into medicine is a very promising uh, development. How is it going to go? That's the question. The devil's in the details. But the idea that. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, psychiatry as a profession has been, you know, I mean, in some ways it, it, it's disappointing for, in part because it relies to such a great extent on, on, on essentially psychopharmaceuticals, these, you know, things like SSRIs and, and that sort of thing which at the end of the day are not that effective. You know, most of the clinical psycho, uh, psychotropics that you might receive as a, as a patient, you know, are ineffective or barely effective. They certainly don't get to the root of your problems. Psychedelics hold out the possibility that a person with depression or PTSD or, uh, you know, addiction, all of these things that they have been... Uh, suggested that they could treat, they actually afford an opportunity for people to get to the root of the problem and actually cure themselves rather than paper it over, you know, which is what most of these other things do. You know, they numb you to what's happening, but they don't fix the problem, you know, and, and psychedelics could potentially actually resolve these things. So a person is you know, finally really cured of depression or cured of addiction. Um, but they're also a different class of medicine in the sense that you, uh, you know, I sometimes say there, it's never going to be about take two and call me in the morning. You know, they require a very intensive therapeutic uh, environments, you know, with, with psychedelics, we talk about set and setting. And those are two variables that are very important. You have to, setting, you have to find an optimal setting for the experience to take place. And then the set is even more complex because the set is what you bring to the experience. And that essentially is not only your expectation and your maybe your intentions but what you are everything you've learned everything you bring to the table that's the set and so you get the interaction you know of setting which should be minimally intrusive and, um, but it should also support the experience i mean you know so it's, it's good to have a comfortable place that maybe some place you can listen to music or look at art or have some kind of sensory stimulus if it's appropriate you need that then you have the setting which is uh 
which you can, uh, you know, and, and usually there is, a, at least in a clinical situation, there's, there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of discussion that goes on with the therapist before they ever take the medicine, you know, and, and then they have the experience with the help of the clinician who, again, their job is to be as unobtrusive as possible but there, you know, for, to support the patient. And then after the session, there's a period of integration. And that's also very important to make the most of, uh, of the experience so that you can kind of integrate and interiorize the insights that you have so that it sticks, you know, if there's a therapeutic effect, so that, you know, you actually are able to integrate that and the effects are long lasting. And, uh, and these medicines are remarkable that way. Uh, you know, that one or two sessions uh, with something like psilocybin can help people overcome problems that they've had for years, you know, and not responded to therapy, not responded to anything. I mean, the evidence is clear with something, for example, like smoking. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that psychedelics would be that useful for quitting smoking because tobacco is, is often integrated very much into shamanic practices. But work at Johns Hopkins has shown that psilocybin is extremely effective for helping long-term serious addicts to, to tobacco, two or three pack a day people that have done it all their lives two or three sessions with the right preparation and everything, 80% of that, that group in the, in the early studies that they did were able to basically stop smoking. And six months later, they were still tobacco-free. And then a year later, they were still tobacco-free. Always there's a few people that drop off, you know. But in general, the therapeutic effect is robust and long-lasting. So there's never been a, a class of medicines that, that, you know, that has, they've been used in traditional contexts for forever. It requires, uh, uh, you know, a different approach to therapy if you're going to use psychedelics effectively. And, and basically the, the, the economic model around biomedicine right now it's very difficult to support that because if a therapist has to tie up a lot of their time and they're, they're based on that. So, you know, there's a need for pre-session integration, pre-session preparation, and then the session, which takes at least a day, you know, and then post-session integration, which, which might go on for, there might be several, uh, several post-session, uh, uh, you know, interviews, uh, sessions with the therapist. So the economic model doesn't e easily uh, support psychedelic therapies, which is, which is not a criticism of psychedelic therapy. I mean, it is more effective than anything that is available. It's a criticism of the way medicine is structured, you know. Uh, it's far too driven by the economic factors, I think. And, uh, and you know, it has to change if psychedelics are going to be effectively used in, in clinical settings. And then, then the other side of it is, 
and maybe one reason it's been resisted for so long, because these are medicines that you take rarely and once or twice, you know, or a few times to get the therapeutic effect. Big Pharma doesn't like that. They love, they want things you take every day for the rest of your life, hopefully four times a day, you know. That's where the money is. I don't think there's money to be made in manufacturing psychedelics, uh, you know, in the pharma model. I think the revenue comes from the services that you provide, you know, the clinical support. I think ideally these things are not used in, in, uh, in uh, hospitals or clinics. They should be used in therapeutic centers that look, look more like holistic wellness centers and that kind of thing. They would fit very well into that con context. And that's, that's, I think that's the future of therapeutic use of psychedelics. Once these things are approved, uh, I think you're going to see that model. Um, yeah, I agree with you completely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, psilocybin is the only psychedelic which doesn't require a specific, you know, shamanic ceremony, a specific, you know, jungle type of setup can be taken anywhere, even in a controlled environment, as you mentioned. Yes, I mean, to some degree. I mean, I, I don't think any psychedelic can be used on its own, uh, depending on the person that's using it, you know, uh, and their experience and so on. LSD can be used this way. Psilocybin can be used this way. MDMA can be used this way. Something like ayahuasca can be used that way, but generally we think of ayahuasca as being used in a group setting with a shaman or some kind of a ritual, uh, you know, some kind of a ritual around it. It does not have to be a traditional uh, shamanic setting. I mean, it, it fits comfortably into that, but that, that it doesn't have to be that. And I know people and, you know, I, I've known people who have, uh, you know, that, that, I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is that you must learn to use ayahuasca with a, with a uh, teacher, with an, you have to apprentice yourself to a teacher to learn to use ayahuasca. But I know people that have taught themselves how to use it and they're doing just fine, you know. Ultimately, it's great to have a it's great to have a vessel, you know. I, I, I sometimes tell people ayahuasca is a liquid. It's going to fill whatever vessel you provide for it. You know, whether that's a traditional shamanic ceremony or a, a, a you know, a, a new age uh, neo-shamanic uh, retreat center in Marin County or whatever it might be, it will fill the vessel. It's and it really doesn't matter that much what the ritual context is it's just that there needs to be a ritual context to contain the experience you know uh it makes it much better if there's some structure around it but you're you have a wide latitude in how you choose to uh, uh structure the, the experience you know so ritual is important because you know, you're putting people into a context where the, uh, you know, the, the point of what they're doing, the whole uh, objective of what they're doing is to blow up, 
temporarily, well, blow up, that's a scary term, but, but temporarily disable the default mode network, you know, and the default mode network is what we depend on to keep ourselves grounded in normal reality. Well, you're, you're, you're entering into the sessions with the objective of disrupting normal reality temporarily so that you can get some insights by stepping out of that reference frame. You, you can get insights into lots of things, you know, but, but if it's a therapeutic session, you can get insights into what your problems are, you know, depression or, or trauma or whatever it is you're, uh, you know, you're, you're there to explore. And of course, you know, we, we, we talk about these, uh, these disorders as though they were in boxes, you know, and that's not really usually the way it works. Uh, uh, you know, they're overlapping. People are complex. So, you know, if you have trauma, chances are you also have anxiety, you know, and, and you may have addiction because you may turn to these other addictive drugs to deal with your with your uh, insecurities and your fears and all that so uh, the treatment is complex and uh, and you know but it's it's interesting it's like it's like psychiatry has traditionally relied on things like uh, uh, SSRIs which you know uh, serotonin uh, selective reuptake inhibitors as as uh, antidepressants Depressants, but then they can also be used for anxiety, and they can be used for other things, and they they tend to be overprescribed. You know, uh, as happens every time a new drug comes along, it's overprescribed. And but in the case of psychedelics, if there were, you know, if there were such a thing as what you might call a broad spectrum. Uh, uh, psychotherapeutic medicine, psychedelics would be that, you know, because what happens is so dependent on these variables of set and setting, you know, so depending on your expectations uh, and your experience and everything else, they can be used to uh, uh, treat virtually anything, it depends on how you guide the experience. Um, there was uh, recently, uh, there, there's an investigator um, at the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, who I've worked with on a couple of my ethnobotanical projects, but he, he is the director of the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, psychoactive drug screening program and he's it's it's basically investigational psychopharmacology he has all of these different cell lines with all of these neurotransmitter uh, receptors expressed in these you know uh, genetically engineered cell lines they are the targets and then he can he has automated systems so he can screen you know thousands of compounds a day if, if they want to do that. He recently got a grant from DARPA, which is uh, uh, Defense Advanced Research, Research, Research Projects Agency. 
it's a shadowy uh, part of the Defense Department. They do all the cutting edge and semi-secret and probably fairly sinister stuff, you know. And and he got a grant from them just recently to design non-psychedelic psychedelics. Wow. And and in other words, psychedelics that have the had the experience engineered out of it. You know, uh, and, but we'll do the same things that psychedelics do on the neurophysiological, pharmacological level. They'll they'll do what psychedelics do, but you won't actually have an experience. And I told him this is a non-starter. You know, I don't think you can. I don't think you can develop a psychedelic that and and eliminate the experience. The experience is what it's all about. You know, because it puts you in this state, this 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 disruption, this deliberate demolishing or or disabling is a better word of this default mode network. Because the default mode network is where you know the the uh, you know it's a set of habits and behaviors and memories and expectations. It's what you rely about. It's it's kind of the cocoon we all wrap ourselves in, uh, in order to be functional in the world, you know. And a lot of what the the default mode network does, it excludes things, you know. It it prevents too much information to getting in, because the brain constructs its own reality. And if it were overwhelmed by, by sensory data or whatever, it would just be confusing. So the default mode network is a way to get enough in to construct a plausible model of reality, but not so much that you're overwhelmed by it. And then if you take a psychedelic, you're, you deliberately, temporarily disable this. So that's what enables you to, that's where the therapeutic effect is. It's almost like returning to an embryonic state in a certain way, or maybe a stem cell is a better analogy. You break down this system and it's like rebooting your computer. You know, once you, when you restart the computer, a lot of things go away that get accumulated in the system and they, you know, it purges them out. So then the default mode network is very resilient. It will reconstruct itself most of the time, almost always, uh, it will reconstruct itself and your mind, your brain will run a little bit better. It's like adding uh, STP into your gasoline, you know, the engine will run smoother. So uh, I think there's, I, I think that that's where the therapeutic effect is. You know the uh, and it happens on the psychological level, but also on the I think the genetic and epigenetic level. You can actually modify gene expression and this sort of thing and develop new connections that persist beyond the psychedelic experience. So uh, novel, uh, essentially rewired, that modified this variable that we call neuroplasticity um which a few years ago it was it was it was thought that neurons could not reproduce they you know and now all that's gone out the window not only do they reproduce and psychedelics sometimes uh stimulate that 
but they also form new connections. It just makes sense that this would happen because they're, they're complex systems interacting with the outside and the inside environment and uh, responding accordingly. So, um, Yeah, Dr. Jody Spezza and Bruce Linton, they both talk about neuroplasticity. So in other words, there is you know, light at the end of the tunnel and hope for those who need this type of help. It's, and it's very close to it to happen. That's, that's good news. Yeah, yeah, it, it is happening. Um, but, but in order to see it, I mean, these, these things may be approved. I mean, they are already being approved. And it will be interesting to see how, uh, how they get integrated into medicine. You know, and I'm, a, uh, I mean, I, I'm all for that happening. I, I my own um, um, bias is toward the plant medicines or the plant, the fungal medicines, the natural medicines, because they are, they're the ones that have been used traditionally. And uh, in some ways, I think they come to us from a long historical and cultural tradition where indigenous people have lived with these plants for millennia sometimes. They've learned how to use them. They've created you know, these very practical uh, kinds of uh, technologies for using them. And I think that uh, psychiatry would uh, do well to pay attention to that, you know, and, and try and not necessarily you can't really imitate them. You, we can't become indigenous people, but we can we can look at what goes on in these practices and try to integrate them with conventional psychotherapeutic practice. Maybe come up with something that's superior to either one by itself. That's what I'd like to see. And then ultimately, I think uh, you know. I think. Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to reduce the psychedelics to, uh, you know, crystals and capsules, essentially. You, you can do it, they have the effect, but you lose the cultural associations. And often psychedelics are important in uh, 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 sort of waking people up to their relationship with nature. And so it's better if you're taking a natural psychedelic in a natural setting, maybe, you don't have to do it that way, but it, it would be it would be optimal to do that. So, uh, what I would like to see in the future of psychedelics and, is that, in the first place, I, I'm really encouraged by a lot of these decriminalization movements that are going on. I think that should go forward. We could go on and on about. I mean, I. I personally feel that the very idea that you could criminalize a plant is absurd, you know? Uh, I mean, it's absurd. They're, they just, just, hands off, just leave them alone, you know? Let, let people use them the way they want to. And, uh, and, and so the, the uh, you know, a consequence of this, once the decrim movement gets, gets started is that you could have these therapeutic centers in North America and Canada and the US, maybe some of them would be managed by a Native American or First Nations people. That's one way you could do it. 
or if the if the uh, medicines are not prohibited and and just not regulated then these centers can operate in the open and with no shame and every community could have a uh, psychedelic therapy center you know uh, and which they may have they may offer other things too other types of healing modalities like yoga and body work and, and this sort of thing but but within that context they could offer psychedelic therapy and then if they form alliances with indigenous people for example in south america that use this in the tradition you know you you could they could share or they could be the suppliers of these medicines to north america and you know through legal channels legal distribution channels and so on and uh that's ideally how I'd like to see it develop because one thing that would do, you would, you would empower the indigenous people to be the still the guardians and the producers of these plants, uh, the keepers of the knowledge and uh, essentially economic benefits for them to produce these things under, uh, you know, uh, controlled conditions and, and produce the medicines and, and reduce the uh, the ayahuasca tourism phenomenon which is i mean i participate in it so i i'm guilty you know but uh and in some ways it's great i mean i i think it's great but i also see that it has uh, some adverse cultural uh consequences you know uh, it, it 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 must be done carefully with great sensitivity and that's not always the case uh you know, and, and if people uh, who want these experiences can get them closer to home, that's that's a good thing, probably. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And there are these centers to be run by indigenous uh, people. It's amazing. And in fact, that's the, the word I was looking for, empowerment, to give them that, you know, sense of belonging again into their communities. And they can teach us about... Uh, the knowledge they have and their uh, customs and, and that's that's amazing yeah once yeah. once or in fact multiple times i heard you say that only an increased level of consciousness can um, save us as humanity and this is something you know i totally agree i wrote about this concept in all my books um, so what do you think it will take for us to create that critical mass to uh, take us to that uh, next level of consciousness well, I think uh, I think there has to be a global shift. I think that I, I think that it's happening. I think that this is one reason why people are reaching out to psychedelics and reaching out to these traditions because uh, uh, you know a couple of things drive it. One is simply that you know people crave meaningful experiences. And largely, they do not find it anymore in our institutionalized religions. You know, uh, they are, they are, they're probably the last place that you should expect to have a genuine mystical experience, you know. Uh, a direct communication with the divine is not something they encourage. You know, this is something for the priests to, to do. And, and it's, it's not for the individual. And so, so that's inherently threatening to these power structures 
And that's what organized religions basically are. They're power structures that are not so much designed to uh, provide spiritual fulfillment as to make sure that you don't think too much, you know, and that you accept whatever they're telling you is, is the, the truth and uh, stop asking so many questions. Well, psychedelics are the opposite of that, you know? I mean, uh, I, mean uh, I often said, you know, you don't have to have faith. In, in religions, you're, you're expected to have faith, you know? And, and to me, faith is accepting what somebody tells you without any evidence. You know, it may well be true, but you accept it on faith and you don't question it, you know, and psychedelics are the opposite of that. You don't have to have faith to benefit from a psychedelic, you know, what you have to have is courage, you know, enough courage to actually sit down and take the cup or smoke the pipe or whatever it is, and then let, let it unfold, let it speak to you. The, the, uh, you know, you, you can expend a lot of effort trying to develop an optimal set setting, uh, an optimal setting for it and make sure the medicine is good quality and all that. But the rubber meets the road in the intense personal interaction between you and the medicine. You know, uh, sometimes they call these things plant teachers. And I think that that's actually a fairly accurate characterization, you know, and in a traditional context, there may be a shaman, there may be a shaman that's uh, holding the space, as they say, or or orchestrating the circumstances. But the good ones, the ones that know what they're doing, they, they know when to step out of the way, you know, they they know that the real therapy and the real, uh, you know, the real experience happens between a person and the medicine. They're just there to facilitate that. Make sure that it's a safe environment. Make sure that they're there uh, if the person becomes anxious or, you know, otherwise gets into some rough spots. But in general, their duty is to sit back and let it, let it unfold, let it happen. And then be there to help them, help people integrate after the session. A lot of times we say the real work begins after you go home, you know, and that can go on for weeks, years, sometimes a lifetime. I mean, people do look back on some of their most profound psychedelic experiences as, well, as you know, you're probably familiar with the work that... uh, uh, Roland Griffiths and his people did on psilocybin. And they don't talk about mystical experiences. Maybe that's a, a too highly charged word, but they talk about meaningful experiences, you know, and and many of their subjects said it is it was the most meaningful experience I ever had. That's a pretty amazing claim to make for a drug, you know, that, that it, it can do that. And, uh, and, and yet these things do. Uh, and it, 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 it is, and, and the meaningfulness of the experience is, becomes a remembered experience, you know, uh, something that you can, you can really cherish. I mean, it's become one of those things in your life that is a highlight.
I mean, I, I, I remember, we all remember the highlights of our lives, you know. Uh, I remember the first time I made love. I mean, that was a highlight, although it didn't really go that well. <laughs> but, but it was the first time, you know, and, and so it left an impression. And the psychedelics are are in that category, you know, among the few experiences that we may have in a lifetime that really have an impact on, uh, on who we are. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you took um, Brian Rose of London Rio um, down to Soltara in Costa Rica and you shoot that movie uh, Reconnect. Was that a way to familiarize people with uh, ayahuasca and with the indigenous culture or because it had a different purpose? Was it a way to familiarize people with ayahuasca? Yes, and with psychedelics in general. Yeah, um, I, uh, Saltera is a retreat center in Costa Rica that I go sometimes and, uh, you know, I get to go there. I'm the guest of honor. I, I provide uh, some some lectures and so I get to come for free and uh, and we were there and then this this gentleman from London Brian Rose uh, I had been uh, uh, a couple times in the UK I'd gone to his studio and done podcasts and, and we talked about ayahuasca and so on and I just felt that he really uh, could benefit from it and but he was always not you know, just busy like everybody is. It's like, I got too much going on, man. I can't take time, you know. And I, I just said, Brian, you know, this is an excuse. You just need to, you just need to get on a damn plane and get down there, which he did. And as you see in the movie, it's, uh, uh, you know, it was very, uh, very meaningful for him. And, uh, um, and, and he, was, he was grateful that he, that he did it. Um, so that's the thing you, you, you can't force people to do it, but you can encourage them. And, uh, usually they thank you afterwards, you know, uh, I mean, they, but you know, it's, it's such a personal thing that, uh, you, uh, you know, everybody, every, everybody has to come to it on their own, on their own terms. It's this dynamic interaction of set, of the setting and the set and every set is unique you know we are each an individual and there's no other entity in the universe exactly like us you know so uh that's a really important component of this interaction and then of course there is whatever the medicine is <coughs> you know and the dose those are also important variables yes one of your uh, latest and uh, dearest projects is the uh, McKenna Academy. Please give us more details about it. Yes. Yeah, the McKenna Academy is uh, an idea I had uh, probably because uh, I spent a lot of time in academia. Um, I've spent, I taught ethnopharmacology and botanical medicines for about 20 years at uh, the University of Minnesota. And it was a great experience, but I talked about ayahuasca and, and other psychedelics a lot. And they were tolerant of that, but I always felt like I was a bit marginalized. And, you know, 
it was in a it was in a, uh, a division of the medic medical school there called excuse me the the center for spirituality and healing so it's not like and it was the alternative medicine programs you know and and so you know it, it's not like uh they weren't tolerant of, of woo-woo ideas or, or unusual ideas. But I, I used to tell them, I teach the hardest science course in your, in your curriculum, you know, because I was talking about plants and chemistry and how they worked and, and all that. And other people are doing, you know, yoga and mindfulness and, and energy medicine and all that stuff which is fine, I don't put it down, but it's not exactly hard science. What I taught was the same kind of course that I would teach in, in a biology department, and that, that's how I viewed it, since my background is ethno, ethnopharmacology. Uh, when I moved to Canada, I, I long have wanted to uh, create a nonprofit that would essentially be my own academy. You know, I was, I mean, you might say I was a failure as an academic, you know, in, even though I was 20 years teaching at the university, I was always adjunct. I didn't play the game of academia. I did not worry about tenure or anything like that. I worried a bit about grants, and, but I wasn't trying to get a grant every time I stumbled into a couple that were interesting. But I wanted to create an academic institution where the focus is on learning and uh, on uh, natural philosophy. And natural philosophy is the precursor of science. It's what science used to be before it became quantitative and reductionist and only concerned with certain ways of knowing. There are other ways of knowing that are legitimate. And natural philosophy science grew out of natural philosophy and natural philosophy casts a much wider perspective. And as the name implies, it's essentially a, a way to understand ourselves, nature, and that relationship, you know, our, our place in nature. And uh, I wanted to model the McKenna Academy over on the, uh, the mystery schools in the Mediterranean, of which Eleusis was probably the best well-known and the longest lived, in which psychedelics were part of the curriculum. You know, having these experiences, it was recognized that they have value. And within the context of Eleusis, I mean, that's what you went there for, among other things. There were other teachings and so on. But I feel, felt that the time was right for a modern mystery school, 21st century mystery school, that would uh, certainly respect science and include science, but have a, have a broader uh, mandate than just scientific investigation. And so I decided to found this academy. And why is that important? Well, in part because you know, I'm, I'm passionate about this, I'm committed. People might say, yeah, you're also a tremendous egoist, right? E egotist, because you've named the academy after yourself. I'm really not, you know, uh, I'm all about collaboration. I'm all about working with people, the best minds I can find to create incredible 
educational experiences, you know, and, and I decided to call it the McKenna Academy because the name has a certain recognition and people were saying, people told me, if you're going to do this thing, step up and own it. Don't be ashamed of it. Put your name out there. So I'm doing that. And uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but I, I'm having a good time. I, I'm attracting some just amazing talents, you know, and uh, uh, brilliant minds. And in my, uh, in my experience, uh, you know, it, 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 I mean, I, I'm kind of a generalist, you know, but I know a little about a lot, you know, but very, but not so much a lot about some specialty except certain specialties. But, uh, you know, I like spending time with people who have expertise in different areas that may be fairly opaque to me, you know, but I, I still find them interesting and, and this academy is a place to bring people together with what to share their knowledge, you know, and hopefully, uh, you know, those experiences will, will be transformative for people. And that doesn't always involve taking psychedelics, you know, I mean, it could be, it often will. I mean, we, we, the academy plant medicines or plant teachers, as we might call them, are definitely central to what the academy is about. Uh, I, I sometimes say, you know, it's the first psychedelic mystery school in 1500 years, and not all the faculty members are human, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. And also I see it as, a, as your legacy, which is very important. Yeah. Maybe so. I would like to um, get closer to the end of the interview with a question which I think is, is important. Uh, why do you think that the society at large still disregards the indigenous wisdom? Is that a fair statement? Well, I think, yes. I think, in, I, I think that society in general has, has tended to dismiss indigenous wisdom that's that's been the usual uh way it's been they dismiss indigenous wisdom along with the indigenous people and the knowledge that they have and this is this is just arrogance you know this is the arrogance of the european tra tradition where you know that the the white colonialists tend to think that they're the superior they're the superior civilization and, and no other civilization could possibly have anything to, uh, to offer. But in fact, that's not true. If you look at, at the new world at the time of uh, Columbus and before that, it, they were very complex societies. They were every bit as sophisticated as, as anything in Europe. You know, but Europe has this mindset that, you know, they have to be the dominators and, and they encounter these other societies, which are, have less of a, a, a mindset toward war and, and, uh, and conflict. And so they were helpless in a certain way as these Western predatory uh, civilizations came to, uh, you know, to, to take them over, basically disrupt them and and just decimate them as they have uh but they miss a lot i mean they they miss that knowledge 
now we're in an existential situation where we need to we need to learn from those traditions we've forgotten how to live in harmony with nature that is at the center of what's wrong with us is that we have gotten out of sync with nature we've become estranged from nature and we have been poisoned by this western mindset that nature exists to serve us we're entitled to own it, exploit it, dominate it, and ultimately destroy it. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, and we're not, you know, and, and the psychedelics can be a catalyst for waking us up to the fact that this is happening. What we have to do is understand that we do not control nature. Nature is running the show. You know, by the very fact that it, makes life sustainable on the earth the plants are running the show through photosynthesis and all this you know and we tend to think that you know i mean we're not a part we we tend to think of ourselves as apart from nature and superior to nature and this has been encouraged really by the abrahamic religions which teach us that you know our reward is in heaven right it's it's after you die that it really gets good and so it's an incentive to devalue nature. And why should we expend effort to preserve nature? We're not, you know, we're headed to the promised land or whatever. Well, this is a con game, actually. You know, maybe there is and maybe there isn't. My guess is there probably isn't, you know. And I mean, I don't know because I, I haven't died. But uh what we need to do is learn to value nature in this life, and we need to form alliances, or another word for that is symbiosis. So a lot of what the Academy is all about is symbiosis, emphasizing the idea that, you know, uh, life succeeds when there's collaboration. You know, uh, uh, the conventional view of evolution and, and all that is natural selection, competition, you know, survival of the fittest and all that. That does go on. That there, that's an element of evolution. But, but symbiosis and collaboration is much more important. You know, and everywhere you look in nature, you see symbiosis. And we also engage in symbiosis, but not enough, you know. And, uh, and particularly with these plants. I mean, these plants and the traditions that the indigenous people have preserved for so long, we can learn a lot from these traditions. You know, uh, Western, uh, Western people, and especially, actually, especially scientists, tend to be fairly arrogant about what they think they know. You know, and, and they know things for sure, but occasionally they need to step away from it and remember how little we know in terms of the overall picture of what's really going on. Psychedelics will forcibly remind you of that, how little we know. It's always good to keep that in mind, you know, uh, and, and science tends to be a profession that invites arrogance, you know, and the, the, the uh, temptation to say, you know, we have this figured out. I'm sorry, we don't have it figured out. You know, we have a very tiny slice of reality of the universe 
intensively studied probably figured out, except that inherently the inherent nature of science is it's always provisional, you know, you never prove anything in science. You only can say consistent with, you know, what we think, you know, the data is consistent with what we think the phenomenon is. New data may come in the next day or next week or years from now that completely overturns the theory. That's one of the good things about science if it's properly, uh, you know, if it's properly practiced, which it isn't, often isn't, but it's self-correcting, you know, in the sense that it's always undergoing revision. You know, you build hypotheses and you test them against the available data. And if you're on it, and sometimes it's fit, it fits. And then you can say, well, based on everything we know now, this looks like a pretty good understanding of, of the phenomenon. But you never say, we have proven this, you know. Then you cross over from science into dogma. And and you cross over from science into religion, and, and science can get very culty in some ways. When it, it, it's it's not it's not immune from that. It's something that should be guarded against. We should always be testing our assumptions, and uh, and we should be humble. You know, humility is is a good thing. Yes, it's very important to be humble, especially in uh, this environment. Um, Dennis, I'm convinced that uh, you know your words will resonate uh, with uh, the viewers of, of these channels. I invite all of them to you know go deeper inside, open their hearts to to nature, as you said, to um, hug a tree. There's nothing wrong with, with hugging a tree and getting that uh, energy back into our our bodies. Um, I I really uh, appreciate your time uh, and being uh, able to uh, join me for uh, for this interview. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll help you, uh, you know, gathering forces around the academy, even maybe raising funds for the blimp. Uh, you didn't mention that uh, you are looking to purchase a, a blimp, which will flow above the, the Amazon from where you can, you know, broadcast live uh, various experiments or even um, ayahuasca ceremonies. Okay, well... Yes, thank you for inviting me. This was this was uh, enjoyable for me, and uh, yeah, tell people uh, I gave you the URL. You probably already have it. Stay tuned. Uh, we are, uh, you know, a, a lot of what the academy is about and, and will be about is doing conferences and retreats and that sort of thing. Right now, we can't do that because of COVID. So we've, uh, we're forced to develop uh, more online things, which was always part of the plan. So we're just trying to develop an online presence and we're giving different events. So people uh, that are interested, they can keep in touch through the academy and we're, 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 we're trying to present uh, everything from virtual conferences to podcasts to, you know, individual one-on-one -on -one interviews and so on, always with the idea of topics that we think will be of interest to people, you know, um, on nature, on the cosmos, on psychedelics, on consciousness, and, you know, the big questions, right? So, so uh, yeah.
Yes, like it's a miracle and we have to live it properly, embrace it with, with joy. Every single day we should embrace it with, with joy. Yes, yes. All right. Thank you once again. And for everyone else, um, thank you for, for watching this interview. Share it and subscribe to, to my channel. Don't forget, you can um, uh, support me by uh, subscribing to the uh, Patreon, uh, to my Patreon account at patreon.com slash Until next time, love and gratitude.